Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 61 of the Our Weekly Highlights podcast. My name is Eric, and this one's a special one, folks, because on top of being the curator this week, so wearing multiple hats, I am absolutely thrilled to welcome our brand new co-host for the Our Weekly Highlights podcast, Mike Thomas. So, Mike, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? Well, thanks so much for inviting me, Eric. Um, again, my name is Mike Thomas. I've been a longtime listener of the R Weekly Highlights podcast and appreciate all that Eric's done with the Shiny Dev podcast and the, the R podcast as well. I'm the chief data scientist at Catchbrook Analytics, which is a, a data, data science consulting firm that I, I started a couple of years ago. We're based out of the Connecticut area, and we do specialize in R. Uh, I'm R Studio certified in Tidyverse and Shiny. Uh, shout out Greg Wilson for that. And we do a lot of a lot of R consulting work. And one way that I learned about data science back when I was you know studying in grad and undergrad was through podcasts. There's so much terminology that you you don't know about, and it's kind of like a foreign language. I hear about people who learn Spanish just by turning on the TV and watching the, the Spanish language television shows and I sort of did the same thing um, with podcasts and data science. I, I just consumed a lot of data science podcasts, started familiarizing myself with some of the terminology, you know, started writing some code and, and, and saw it all kind of click together over time. I've been writing R for almost 10 years now, since about 2012 at this point, and really excited for the ability to give back to the R community through this podcast, hopefully which is a community that has given me so much. Well, thank you, Mike. And again, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you and we're going to have lots of fun from this week on. So let's dive right into it. And as I said, this week's issue was curated by myself this time, but it is never alone. We always have great help from the R Weekly team members and contributors. And up first for our highlights today is a really excellent walkthrough on what can be a very difficult concept, especially for those that are getting into open source development and contributing to the vast community of R packages. Recently, Garrick Aiden Bowie, who is on the education team at R Studio, has authored an excellent blog post on actually using a pull request workflow with the recently revamped Use This package. And use this, for those that aren't aware, is a great front end to basically package management and getting yourself set up for success when you actually launch an R package development. But it has had some great advancements in its interactions and, and with the Git version control system itself. And one thing that's really nice that Garrick does off the top of this post is have a really intuitive visual diagram at the very beginning to kind of show you what an example workflow lo looks like. And Mike, I know you're a big fan of those kind of visuals that lead off a complicated topic like this. Absolutely. You know, I think people learn in different ways, but I, I think a lot of people learn visually, and I'm definitely one of those people. So to have a workflow diagram like the one that Garrick has put together, while maybe on the other screen, I'm actually trying to test out some of these use this PR functions is incredibly helpful for me. And the interactivity of his site is phenomenal as well. I'd be really interested to pick his brain on how he coded up that site. Yeah, let's let's talk about this more. So this blog post, instead of being what might be a wall of text to some materials I've seen before, 
this really is a choose your own adventure layout because right off the bat, Garrick asks, which of these two paths or kind of personas do you identify with at this particular step? And once you click on that, it takes you right to the relevant material. And it has some very slick stuff under the hood. I'd imagine he's done some pretty clever JavaScript uh, trickery here, which is something I'm trying to learn in my, um, my learning adventures these days. But what's nice is that this makes this post applicable to all types of experience levels. No matter if you're right brand new to Git and you're brand new to contributing to open source, or if you're a seasoned grizzled veteran with the Git command line like me and kind of want to see, okay, how does the use this package approach and by proxy the GERT package approach this kind of workflow? So I think there is something for everybody. Um, but again, it, it's a testament to Garrick's style for how he can distill what can be very complicated material into something that we all can relate to. And what were your other thoughts about that post, Mike, that you took away from that? So pull requests for me are always somewhat tricky. I don't know if anybody is, you probably are, Eric, but I don't know if anybody is actually ever fully comfortable with everything that Git has to offer. It's, it's impossible. It's, it's too it's big. It's a tricky language. <laughs> yeah. I remember hearing Greg Wilson, uh, who's who's the founder of the Carpentries, say once upon a time that he's taught a bunch of different programming languages over his career and that Git was by far the hardest to teach. And for me, I'm sometimes doing pull requests to myself. I'm sometimes uh, working with collaborators through pull requests uh, on particular projects in Git repositories. So any sort of tools that can help me facilitate that process and make it a little bit easier, like the ones that Garrick's now put into the, the, the use this package. And I think tools like GitHub Desktop as well, they've released a de desktop app. I think they're aimed to uh, just help you avoid mistakes that are easy to come up when you're just Git bashing right from the command line. Um, they kind of maybe provide some of the uh, arguments in these functions that, you know, should work 90% of the time, cover 95% of the use cases, you know, and then for that extra five or 10%, you might have to go into Git bash. But these tools uh, hopefully allow you to not make some of those mistakes that, you know, you don't even necessarily need to know about for 99% of what you're doing, especially as you're, you're starting out in this field and, and starting up with Git and maybe starting to use some of these software engineering tools that aren't really taught in academia because academia doesn't have production systems for you to for you to learn it. Exactly. A lot of this I learned the hard way on the job training. And even in grad school, I actually didn't even use Git back then. I didn't even know of it. So <laughs> it, it's great to have these kind of gateways into an intuitive framework to get started. And then when you feel like you can take the leap and have to do some really gnarly operations like squashing merge commits and other fun stuff, then you can get into the internals, but feel more comfortable doing it. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited to see material like this start to take more shape, especially as the R integrations with Git have become more robust. And as always, in all the show notes for this and past episodes, we have links to everything we're talking about. So definitely check out um, this resource if you're getting into uh, contributing to open source and package development. 
Yeah, I forget who the curator was for this episode, but they did a great job. This is a great pick. Yeah, yeah, that 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 uh, <laughs> that, uh, that a silly person sends a find a find a novel uh, target once in a while. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yep, and um, some great additional material we'll dive into now. And while everyone acknowledges that the uh, current situation of the pandemic has changed many of our lives in many different ways. I will say that it has become a lot more accessible to view what would have been very difficult um, conferences to attend in person. And one of these great conferences that's been running for a few years now is from Jared Lander, the 2021 version of the New York Art Conference. And Mike, I know you've had a lot of uh, fond memories of this conference in the past, as well as how Jared has been able to build his community. Maybe you can share your thoughts about that. Absolutely. I really appreciate all that, that Jared's done for the data science community and the open you know, statistical programming meetup in New York, which is fairly close to me, which is nice because uh, all of his events are in my time zone. One of uh, my first uh, experiences with Jared was actually at the Open Data Science Conference in Boston, Massachusetts. The, the ODSC uh, conference takes place in a couple different cities, I think all over the world throughout the year, but the one in Boston is nice and close to me being in Connecticut. And I went into this workshop, I signed up for this workshop on an introduction to Shiny a, a few years ago. And I, I know that Eric knows well that, that we both do quite a bit of Shiny development now, but a few years back, I, I was just getting started into it. And uh, Jared happened to be the instructor at this uh, open data science conference uh, training workshop. And that's that was my first foray into learning Shiny and he did an awesome job. And obviously now I'm a certified RStudio Shiny developer. So um, he must have given me a great start. And uh, it was like the stars of the RStudio ecosystem were out that day because the TA for that session was Max Kuhn, wow. who is the author of, of a lot of the tidy models packages um, in that whole world. So very, very cool to be in that room and, and learning from the two of them. Yeah, I certainly have fond memories of other workshops I attended. They always do a great job. And and speaking of Jared, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about, um, well, first of all, there, all these talks are excellent. So definitely check out the playlist and, and check all these out. The one I'm going to talk about right now is actually from Jared himself. Um, Jared has been on quite the journey to leverage graphical processing units, or more commonly known as GPUs, with his data science workflows. And if any of you out there have tried to use GPUs with R in the past, this has not been a road that's been traveled easily. In fact, in the first part of his talk, he reviews a very uh, interesting list of packages that aren't even on CRAN anymore for various reasons. And that can leave somebody in a state of, well, I want to do this, but I don't know where to go. Well, Jared's talk is one of the first I've seen recently that really points in practical directions on what's happening in this GPU computing space in this present time. And he highlights that both the Torch and custom builds of the XG Boost packages actually can be wired practically out of the box with GPU support. And why would you want to invest in GPUs, you might ask? Well, even the best spec 
computer processing unit or CPU that you could buy that's within a reasonable budget for us in the normal non-IT server space, they just cannot compare in terms of number of cores to the number of cores you can achieve in even in a mid-range video card, such as from NVIDIA or AMD or whatever have you. And with the advancements in the CUDA library that NVIDIA ships out, it is now quite easy, like I said, with these aforementioned packages like Torch and XGBoost, amongst others, to simply tie that into your R session and get some real significant gains in these mathematical operations that are so common in machine learning and now deep learning workflows. So this is something that I have a fortunate situation where I have a GPU in my box that I'm talking in right now, as well as some access to some of these on my works HPC cluster. So I am now really motivated to try out the techniques that Jared has outlined in his talk and see if I can achieve those similar gains, even with the newer frameworks like tidy models. So I remember when I first saw this talk come through, I was hooked from the start because this has been a nugget I've been trying to crack for some time. And so, uh, Mike, what were your thoughts about that or some of the other talks that you saw? Yeah, so I, I thought that talk was was phenomenal. I think one thing that I keep seeing Jared do is sort of be the first person to address and blog or talk about some of the new techniques that are coming out, especially in the R ecosystem, right? If you talk about GPU computing, especially in terms of building models, and most of the time people are going to point you to Python resources. And the fact that, that Jared is, is sort of stepping up and being one of the first people that I've seen really dive deep and, and blog out in the open about his experiences, I think it is, is phenomenal in terms of leveling the playing field on the R side. One of the um, talks that I really liked watching from the, this year's New York R conference was a talk by Megan Robertson on creating production level data science code. And as a consultant, a lot of the work that we do is actually working with teams who might have a little bit more of a theoretical or academic background and trying to help them put together their R code in a way that is a little bit more robust than you know some scripts over here, some scripts over there, running things by hand, and actually getting them to think about utilizing some of the the software development and software engineering techniques that are out there uh, to improve their workflows and to actually put some of their code into production and, and build tools for their, for their organizations. And she really did a great job of explaining, you know, both kinds of the concepts that she employs when putting code in production, but also keeping it at, at a fairly high level and just discussing, you know, the importance of good software engineering practices and why we even care about putting things in production. And, you know, she talked about, she, she was really eloquent in the way that she talked about it because she said that software engineering has all these standards that we don't necessarily have in just traditional statistics or analytics or, or when you're learning, you know, R or Python sort of undergrad. And they lend themselves really well to collaboration because these standards are, are kind of this framework that everybody in the software development world actually knows about. So if people come and go, or if somebody even just goes on vacation, you know, if you wrote code in a way that is production ready and adheres to these standards, it's much easier to hand off to somebody else 
it's much easier to collaborate with others on. And that's kind of where all of these efficiency gains can come from. Once you start using some of these production level uh, coding techniques and, and she does a much better job explaining it uh, than I could ever do. So I, I really encourage you to go check out her talk at this year's New York R conference. Yeah, there's a lot of that that resonates with me. And I had a project recently where I came pretty close to laying the foundation correctly with standards of code contributions to this major project, standards for even doing pull requests and things to check beforehand. And there were a few details I missed, stuff that Meg definitely touched on in her talk. And I regret that to this day because I've incurred some technical debt in one of these projects and I'm trying to reel it back in. So it may take some upfront work. It may take some discipline in the beginning, but future you and future collaborators will certainly thank you for that investment upfront. It, it can just save so much time. Absolutely. I remember, I think I heard, heard Drew Conway in, in a talk or a podcast or, or somewhere once upon a time, uh, ask somebody how they knew that their code was correct. How did they know that their code was correct? And they had never heard of unit testing before. And I think that can stop some people in their tracks if that's something that you're not familiar with. But once you start getting comfortable with that and using something like unit test, you realize how powerful it is and you realize how many of your own mistakes that you do catch and how you kind of prevent uh, future you from being terribly mad at, at past you. Absolutely. Yes. So I, I, I have too many of those to mention in this episode, but I have <laughs> learned through experience and it's great to learn from Megan's advice as we start new projects going forward. And especially for those of us that are trying to bring along others that may be new in this journey of hybriding data science with engineering best practices, um, having accessible materials like this um, goes a really long way. And these are just two of the excellent talks that were at the New York Art Conference. We have the full playlist linked in the show notes and also links to these two specific talks if you want to check those out. So we're going to move on to our last highlight for today, which has a great backstory of community contribution in ways that maybe would not have been expected um, with what it turned out. So earlier this year, um, for the first full season, Nick Wan and Meg Runsdale ran the sliced data science competition that was live streamed on Twitch for about 12 weeks. And if you're not familiar with sliced, it's a, in essence, a merging of game show and data science where two contestants would try to achieve the best prediction success for a given data set that they did not see before the episode. So it does have that vibe of getting something done quick and seeing their workflows along the way. Well, this has always been a community endeavor. In fact, Nick Wan even gave a keynote at the recent uh, Columbus Saturday about his community building with Sliced. But one of the members of this community that was watching, just like me, decided to take a little bit of a visual cue to contribute a fun little project. Afton Coombs, a data scientist, had created through simple R functions a sliced alignment chart, which was directly inspired by the same kind of principles from Dungeons and Dragons, which admittedly I have not played when I was a kid. I have, I have geeked them in other ways, but it was an interesting way where she was able to place different contestants in these different, quote, moral alignments, those that were maybe chaotic neutral. 
maybe they were chaotic good and other categories. And she wrapped ggplot2 in a very easy way in this function. And every single week, she would put the contestants in different quadrants based on their performance and their interactions with the audience. And over time, everybody loved it. In fact, it was even a hot topic during the live streams themselves that Nick and Meg would bring up. And as the season concluded, one of the other um, audience members named Tan, who I've um, watched quite a bit as well, he put out a little call for Afton to try putting this package on CRAN. Well, guess what? There are lots of packages that wrap ggplot2 on CRAN. And so Afton took it up as a great learning journey. So she actually live streamed the entire process of taking this simple function and putting it into a package structure. And lo and behold, as of a, a week or so ago, it was formally accepted on CRAN. And now you can install that with a simple install.packages GG alignment call away. So, so Mike, I know you've been big on community, as you mentioned in the earlier part of our episode. Um, what's your take on people kind of putting themselves out there to contribute to a community like this and actually learn something along the way. Like you said, I'm huge on community and I think it's important to empower people at all learning levels in R, you know, beginners, intermediate, uh, and, you know, advanced people, but not just the, the niche areas, which you see, you know, probably more often than not, you know, black blogs that go down maybe a specific rabbit hole as opposed to something that's a little bit more, more general and accessible. So it was phenomenal to see her, it, learning in the open and uh, willing to blog her successes and her failures as she developed this package it, with an amazing conclusion, right, that this got onto CRAN and was accepted on CRAN. And I think this kind of lends itself to learning with a particular goal in mind. If you attach your learning to a project that you're trying to accomplish, and, and her project was building this Dungeons and Dragons style quadrant for placing slice contestants into. I, I think when you have those goals in mind, it allows you to, to learn the specifics of kind of the end-to-end -end life cycle of, of what you're trying to do, maybe more quickly than just learning them theoretically or in general. And I also think that Slice is absolutely awesome. I could never have even conceptualized anything like it before it came out. I think it's sort of revolutionizing Maybe a lot of the ways that the data science community comes together, it's this blender of memes and chat in a sidebar and incredible data visualization and modeling across multiple different languages and, and com color commentary on top of it. It's, it's phenomenal. It's great entertainment, especially if you're interested in the data science space. So I enjoyed watching this whole season and I can't wait until the next one pops up. Yes, and I still remember at the conclusion of the last season in the championship round, David Robinson, the eventual champion, in the last 10 minutes of that last session, whips up a shiny app on the spot, and it was very innovative, very sophisticated, and there's just like nothing that guy can't do. But yeah. there were just lots of these interesting moments um, when contestants trying to get that last little bit of prediction power or that last bit of visualization to find the quote hidden feature that Nick and Meg said was out there. Um, it's certainly a, a great way to take a, a very huge field in data science, but bring people together, have fun, 
and just watching their workflows definitely taught me a lot. Um, I'm sure, yeah, Mike, you probably learned a, a few cool tricks in that too. I'm a big DataViz fan. So the stuff that David Robinson was putting together was amazing. And, and most of the episodes, you know, the data sets and, and the domains that the data sets uh, belong to were a lot of times things that I wasn't familiar with. So the modeling that they were coming up with was really, really cool for me to watch. And then in the finals, you know, I, I'm from a financial services background working with a lot of banks. And the finals was modeling credit losses and the amount of money lost. And I was like, oh my God, this this is me. I would have loved to have been a contestant on that, <laughs> that final episode. It was finally my my domain. So I really enjoyed watching them work uh, on that one. But every week it's it's something different and that's kind of what keeps it so interesting. Yes. And, um, and as I wrap up my thoughts on that particular piece, back to Afton for a second, she actually is one of the biggest reasons I even started doing streaming. She had put a call out earlier in the year to see whatever data science uh, people on, on Twitch were actually showing their learning journeys, showing their content. And at that time, I didn't think much of it. But then I started getting involved. And lo and behold, I've met new people. I've learned a lot, even during my streams, of people like Tan, Afton, um, uh, Daniel, many others that have tr that have helped me out of some pretty sticky, uh, shiny app situations. And so is streaming for everybody? Well, probably not, but it is another way that you can put yourself out there and learn with others um, in a friendly environment. So we'll have a link to Afton's channel in, in the show notes for this episode if you wanna check out her previous streams. And I also have a handy little calendar if you wanna see when people are going to stream that I'll link to as well. All right, well, that is going to put near an end to this episode, but every Our Weekly Issue has a selection of excellent resources that can fill out your R learning fun. And one other one that particularly caught my eye was a package called Sketch that lets you actually convert typical R graphing code into native JavaScript on the spot to produce novel visualizations. This was a resource I shared during um, another person's stream and everybody was going crazy over just how innovative this was. Um, but every, every um, link in our weekly always has great gems like this for sure. That's really, really cool. I think that probably is very applicable to potentially shiny developers, right? Yes. Like ourselves who are interested in always trying to push the limits of Shiny, take it to the next level, um, utilize the work of other JavaScript developers like Dean Natale, who, who's put together so, some great resources for us as Shiny developers. So th this package looks incredible. I'm very excited to see how it matures. Absolutely. Well, um, Mike, uh, where can people uh, find you and get in touch with you if they want to learn more or, or talk with you? So I'm on Twitter, just like everybody else in the data science community, right? That's the best place to find us. Um, you can find me at, at Mike underscore Ketchbrook, which is my company name, K-E-T-C-H Brook, kind of like ketchup. Great. We'll have that in the show notes as well. I can be found at, at the RCast. And also you can find my uh, streaming adventures on my Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash podcast. And the Shiny Developer Series is still going strong. You can find that on the YouTube channel at um, youtube.com slash Shiny Developer Series. So that will wrap up episode 61. Again, I'm so excited that, Mike, you are on board for this and, and our future episodes. 
So um, thanks so much for joining us, everybody, and have a great rest of your week. And we'll be back with another batch of our weekly highlights next week.